Good. How's everybody doing? Good. Sorry, I don't mean to throw you off with by not wearing flannel or having a big beard this morning. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, thank you for coming here this morning. Thank you for not going out of town. I don't know if people are out of town because of Thanksgiving or it's because they know IU plays at home tonight. I don't know. It's, t- it's been tough. It's been a rough year. Uh, thank you, Chris. We are beyond grateful. Uh, like you said, I've been here in Bloomington since I graduated in May of 13. And uh, on behalf of me and my family and our staff and Campus Outreach, we're so grateful for Redeemer. This was by far the best decision we've made in partnering with Redeemer locally here in Bloomington. So thank you guys. Thank you for opening your homes and your families to us. Like, we're so grateful. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, but four months ago, so that was five years ago, but four months ago, I locked down the love of my life, Caitlin. We got married. It's amazing. She's beautiful. Uh, actually, we had a destination wedding, which is great. So if you're not, but if you're not, you know, aware of what a destination wedding is, it's a huge party hundreds of miles away where you get to force your closest friends and family to take time off to celebrate you. It's awesome. It's incredible. <laughs> well, before getting married, so now all my free time is spent with my beautiful wife, but before getting married, if you've known me at all, you know that I like to spend most of my evenings, most of my time both on and away from campus playing basketball. I love basketball. I grew up playing tennis, basketball. I just, I just love playing it. Um, but in this morning, I want to share a little story of a game that I'll never forget. So this was, this was two years ago. This was towards the end of the summer. So summer's drawing to an end. School year's about to begin, and I'd been out of town, so I finally came back in, and I wanted to get a little workout in, play some ball. So I showed up, went to the hyper, as, as where people go, and walk in, and lo and behold, there's, there's like one game about to start, and they need one more guy. So, you know, me being 6'3", gangly frame, of course, I jump in, they pick me up, and being tall, you know, I'm usually tasked with guarding one of the taller guys on the other team. So I get appointed with guarding this kid, because I say he's a kid because he, he looked a good 10 years younger than me, and uh, I have to guard him, and he looked athletic, and he looked like he probably played basketball growing up. Um, so the game begins, and we start playing, and we start shooting around, and um, this guy's taking a few shots, and I could tell, it's like, okay, he knows his way around the court, like, this guy's pretty skilled, and um, so he gets a few shots off, uh, but then I real, but then uh, I realize, I begin to question, like, who is this guy, because he grabbed a rebound, ran down the court, and here I go, running alongside next to him, and it's just me and him, and it's a dead sprint, so I'm not... I don't pride myself on being able to speed past 18-year-olds. I don't pride myself on my skill or ability, but I do have, I'm 28 years old. I've got a little bit of hustle left. I'm in there. Um, and so we're in a dead sprint. Me and this kid are running down the court, and I get in front of him, and we're getting close to the basket, and it's clear. It's like, okay, he's going to the hole. Like, he's taking this ball to the hoop. And so finally, we, you know, time is drawing near, and he's coming up. And so what do I do? I, st- I stand under the basket and throw my arms up as if that's going to do anything. And this kid just rises, like on an escalator, <laughs> rises over me, ignores the no-dunking side, ignores my pride, and just yams on me. He, he dunked on me so hard. Just, I mean, my ancestors felt this dunk. It was <laughs> terrible. It was awful. Uh, he dunked on me like Indiana State dunked on IU last week. It was <laughs> brutal. It was bad. Unexpected and terrible. Um, he ignored me. He ignored my pride. He, he didn't care. 
Uh, and this was just the start. This was the beginning of this kid just mercilessly, not scoring just on my team, but on me, because I was the one guarding him. It was, it was terrible. Uh, so as this game is going on, as he's scoring every single point for this team, I begin to ask the question, like, who the heck is this guy? Who's this kid? Like, did he just sign from the Hoosiers? Like, what is going on? And so the game eventually ends, because he ends it, and I go up to his buddy, and I'm like, you know, panting out of air, and I ask his friends, like, man, who is that? Well, I found out this kid had just signed to play college. He was in high school, and he was about to leave for college. He just signed to go play college ball, like, somewhere else, and so... That's who he was. He was a college basketball player. Uh, he's incredible. Uh, but that's the question I began to wrestle with throughout that basketball game. That's, all, that's often the question we wrestle with when we encounter someone who's amazing or great. I remember first time seeing Michael Jordan or LeBron James, or if you fall golf, watching Tiger Woods, watching someone just, or Roger Federer, someone in their prime, and you begin to wonder, like, who is this guy? Like, he is far and above. He is far different from anybody else on the court, just like that kid. Uh, And that's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. That's the question we see posed in Mark 4, is that Jesus' disciples begged that same question. Who is this man? Who's our friend Jesus? Who is this guy? Uh, It's the question I think each and every one of us is confronted with when we open our Bible. When we come to interact with who Jesus is, we begin to ask the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? If you trusted in Christ, if you've been walking with God for 20 plus years, this is, this is a question you meditate on daily. If this is your first Sunday in church ever, this is the question that's going to be asked to you when you open your Bible. It's, who is this Jesus? Who's this man? You see, I believe the entire Bible is a lot of different stories. It's all these different books pointing to one story. All these different books pointing to one man. And the book of Mark is no different. So from the beginning to the end, this question is begged, who is this Jesus? Much like the question I asked after getting yammed on in the hyper. It's like, who is this guy? Something's different. Um, so let's go ahead, and if you would stand with me, the reading of God's word, we're going to read from Mark 4, 35 through 41. This is Mark 4, 35 through 41. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, Father, we come, God, asking this question that you posed us in this text, Lord, who are you really? Who is, who is this man, Jesus, who even this wind and the sea obey? God, open our hearts and our minds, God. God, give me the words to speak. God, as we are in a season of thanksgiving, um, God, remind us, God, what we're thankful for by reminding us of who you are. God, so please work, be with us today. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
You can grab a seat. Now, if you've grown up with any kind of church background, chances are you've heard this story before. This is one of the most commonly taught stories in Scripture. Um, this story in Mark, particu- but I believe that this story posed in Mark particularly begs the question, who is this man? Who is this guy, Jesus? So we see this account played out in three different Gospels. Um, and in these passages, we're going to see and look at three different things. So we're going to break this into three different parts. We're going to look at who they thought he was, who they thought Jesus was, who Jesus really is, and how he changes everything. So who, the, who they thought he was, who he really is, and how he changes everything. So who they thought he was, verses 35 through 37. Who do they think Jesus was? Well, in their view of Jesus, this has been developed over the time they spent with him. So since Jesus has gone and called all of his disciples, they've just been sitting at his feet. They've been spending every single day with him. You know, we don't know the exact time frame between when he first called them to this point in Mark 4, 35, uh, but we do know that they've witnessed Jesus in action before. In Mark 1, 32, it says that they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So they've spent every waking day, all night, every day, walking around all throughout the region following Jesus. And they've seen him, you know, perform these amazing miracles, healing people physically, casting out demons, doing these amazing things. And so who do they think Jesus is? Man, they think he's their friend. They spent every waking minute with him since they'd met him. Jesus called them to follow him, and since then they've been at his feet. And as we're seeing, these guys uh, were the people who knew Jesus the best. They're the one, Jesus was always around the multitudes, but he always spent concentrated time with the few, with his 12, with his disciples, so who did they think he was? They thought he was their friend, um, which is funny because these guys were the people who knew Jesus the best, but then they're constantly confused or wrong about what Jesus was doing or what he was saying. They always seem to be kind of confused, which kind of begs the question, could that be true of us who claim to know Jesus Christ? You know, we claim to be close to him. We claim to be his friend. And his disciples, they didn't even fully understand. They were, all, they were totally confused all the time. Verse 35, it says that this happened on that day. So this is the same day that Jesus had been teaching in parables to crowds and then privately explaining these things to his disciples. So look back at the beginning of chapter 4. It says that a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Jesus has amassed just a huge following, such a following that he's been backed up all the way to the edge of the sea and he has to get inside a boat because the crowd is so big that that's the only place where he can stand safely to teach them. He's, he's gained this huge following. He's a celebrity following. Um, have you ever met someone who is friends with a famous person? You know, kind of just, you know, they're always kind of around that person who's kind of lingering. If you ever see like celebrities or professional athletes, there's always some people just kind of lingering around, close, old, you know, old high school buddies or whatever. That's who... These disciples are. They're just, they're his closest confidants. They're his closest friends, always around. Jesus is teaching the masses and then privately explaining these parables to them on the side. I like Mark, you know, in verse 36 in Mark, it says that they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, as if to show that they were with him the entire time. See, Mark is showing us that and nothing was out of the ordinary in this story. Leading up to this storm coming, Jesus didn't do anything weird. They just got in the boat and they followed him. They got in the boat to go to the other side. Because he's their friend. You know, he came as he was, as their buddy. 
And then fast forwarding to the scene in the boat, what was Jesus doing? What did we find him doing? Sleeping. He snoozing. And these, and these boats were not big. These fishing boats in the Sea of Galilee, which is technically a freshwater lake, these fishing boats were not big. Historians can estimate and guess that the max amount of people these boats could hold were maybe 15 people. And so this isn't a big boat. This isn't a fancy boat. This isn't a yacht. It's, we know it's a sailboat, but it's, not, but it's nothing crazy. It's really small. And so the level of comfort where we see Jesus sleeping in this tiny boat around his closest friends is obvious. He's their friend. And this, all, this story also reveals something unique about who Jesus is. And we're going to go ahead and you know, give you a word of the day. It reveals Jesus' hypostatic union. So here, there's a word for you. So this reveals Jesus' hypostatic union of who Jesus is. So if you've never heard this before, it's the dual, it's the combination of Jesus' humanity and his deity. The hypostatic union of Jesus being fully God, yet fully man. So we see his humanity. His humanity is played out here. He's just, he's just one of their friends. He's another human. Can you imagine how tired Jesus must have been that he gets in the moat? He's been teaching all day. He's been traveling around the land, healing people from demons, teaching in parables, then privately explaining these things to his friends, that he gets in the boat and he has to fall asleep. He must have been exhausted. We see that Jesus was a man, and he's a hardworking man. Um, so who did his disciples think Jesus was? Man, they thought he was their friend. They also just thought that Jesus was their teacher. Because what do we see here? These are veteran fishermen and multiple fishing boats crossing the lake together, and all of a sudden a storm hits. And commentators deduce that at least seven of his disciples are trained fishermen. So seven, of the, seven out of the 12 are like trained professional guys. They made their living on the water. And as what's the first thing they, they cry out? As soon as the storm hits and things get crazy, what do they do? They, sh- you know, they wake them up and they're like, teacher, hey. I just, ima- you know, I just remember waking my mom up saying, mom, mom, mom. Imagine that's kind of what it was like. I'm just like, teacher, don't you care? Like, what are you doing? Te- wake up. What are you doing, Jesus? He's been teaching them all these things. So, of course, they view him as their teacher. So we see, how, we see how they see Jesus as both their friend and their teacher. But what reveals this perspective? What reveals, what does it take to reveal their view of Christ? It takes a storm. It takes a storm to show us how they view their friend and their teacher, Jesus. It takes a storm to reveal that. And this wasn't just a normal storm. Mark specifies that this was a great windstorm. So he calls it a great windstorm. In Matthew's account of this story, he describes this event using the word seismos to describe the storm. Seismos, that word literally means earthquake. That's the way Matthew described it. So it was a great windstorm, a seismos seismos storm, like an earthquake. It was as if the lake was literally being shaken. I have a good buddy from college who, he's Mexican, played tennis through college together, and he lives and works in Mexico City. We were recently catching up, and he was telling me about the earthquake. Do you guys hear about the earthquake that hit Mexico in September? Devastating. It's crazy. People were without power for weeks. It was horrific. It wreaked havoc. Thousands of people, dozens of buildings toppling over. My friend said he, th- he was on the fourth floor at work. He said he thought he was going to die. He's terrified. This is the kind of fear they have from this great windstorm. This is what they're experiencing. This is what is being described here. I imagine just the roller coaster experience 
up and down through the waves. If you've ever been on a deep sea fishing trip, you know, and you've probably thrown up, uh, it's because it's terrible. <laughs> I remember growing up, my dad took all my brothers out, and I didn't want to go. I wanted to sleep in. I'm glad I did because they came back and they'd all thrown up because of what the boat just going up and down, up and down. This is the roller coaster experience these guys were having a seismos storm, great windstorm. So, this wasn't just any normal storm. And Jesus, their friend, asleep in the boat, he's just their buddy sleeping in the boat, all of a sudden turns into Jesus, their teacher, who doesn't care that they're going to die. <laughs> He's, from the, he's their friend asleep, and then just like, man, he doesn't even care that we're dying here. We're perishing. How true is this of us today that our view of God is usually revealed, not by the good that happens in our lives, but by the bad, by the hard circumstances. Who we think God is is revealed by these tough circumstances. Like the disciples, maybe you viewed God primarily as a friend most of your life. He's just a, he's just a buddy. He's there. He's with me to kind of weather the storms. He's a pal to have around to kind of make me feel good. Kind of wear him on my necklace a little bit. Got a tattoo of him. He's, he's present in my life, but that's it. He's there, but he's just present in my life. Or maybe you view God primarily as a teacher in your life. He's just a teacher. He has wisdom and instruction, little nuggets of gold to live by, something to tweet later. Um, but when stuff hits the fan, he has no real power. He's primarily a teacher. How do you view God? What have the storms in your life revealed on how you approach and how you view who God is, who this Jesus is? Fear is a really strange thing. Says so these guys were filled with great fear. Fear is a strange thing. Uh, we're just out of October, uh, which a year ago is a pretty big month for me because Caitlin and I are in full force of dating. And so, you know, me trying to be clever and pull all the, pull all the stops and go on fun dates. Of course, we went to a haunted house because there'd be a chance that maybe she'd grab my arm or something. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if you know the concept of what a haunted house is, but it's basically where you pay a lot of money to run through a dingy field or warehouse and get chased, chased away by a masked guy wielding a chainsaw. Pay money for that. That's a lot of fun. Um, why, why do people love... Why do these places, places like make a killing every year? Pause for a laugh. Why do people keep coming back... <laughs> Why do people always come back to haunted houses year in and year out? Because people love to be f- afraid. People love to be scared. But only, they only love to be scared to the degree that they're still in control. People love to be afraid, but only to the degree that you're still in control. That's why you see people running out of a haunted house. You know, you're on one end of the house, you're walking in, you're in the long line. On the backside, you see people screaming, running out, and there's a guy with a chainsaw chasing after him. Why do people do that? Uh, because they're still in control. It's fun and entertaining to the degree that you're still in control. Now imagine tonight, you're at home, watch, watching the Hoosiers play South Florida, and some guy kicks, out, kicks the door out of your closet, and he's got a mask on, he starts chasing you with a chainsaw. Are you going to run away laughing? <laughs> no, absolutely no, you're getting out of there. No, you're calling the cops. You're terrified. That's the great fear we see here. Why, why are you afraid? Why are you not afraid in the haunted house and you're truly afraid in your home when a guy starts chasing you with a chainsaw because you're out of control. Things get scary. Water starts pouring into the boat. All of a sudden, you're a trained fisherman, but all of a sudden, you don't have control anymore. Things are out of control. It's really scary. That's the kind of fear we see in the disciples here. They didn't wake up Jesus thinking like, oh, this guy can save us. 
Like, oh, he can help us? No way. They thought they, thought they were going to die. They said, don't you care that, we're already, that we are perishing? So they were like, we're dying out here. What are you doing? You're asleep. Things were clearly out of control. Shaking away. Like, Dude, someone wake up. Jesus, we're dying out here. Get him up. He's sleeping out on the cushion down there. How has this played out in your life? Because our true colors aren't shown when the good happens, but when the bad, when the tough circumstances, when the hard things happen. How have circumstances revealed how you view Christ? Does Jesus seem to be missing right when all the hard things begin to happen in your life? Does he seem to not be there, not present? Like the disciples, was he just a friend? He's a nice friend to have around, but doesn't have any real power. Or is he just a good teacher, someone to give you nuggets of wisdom to create a healthy and wealthy life, but no power when things aren't going well? Have any of you felt this way? I know you have. It's easy. It's so easy to believe that the ship is sinking as water's pouring in, as the great windstorm is whirling. When you don't get into the program or graduate school that you've worked so hard for, that you've been writing for, studying for, when you're drowning at work and there's no escape, you think the only way out is if I can quit, but you can't do that. You feel stuck. Or maybe you're at home every day with your kids and completely overwhelmed. Things are just crazy. It's a great windstorm. I grew up with five siblings. There was always a great windstorm in our house. It's crazy. Or maybe you're at home every day desiring children, but just found out you can't have them. Or you're at the doctor's office, and he tells you stage four. Or you find out you're being deployed for a year. Or like one of my closest friends who grew up with an alcoholic an abusive father. It's easy to think, man, who is this Jesus I'm following? And why am I following him? Because he doesn't seem to care. And, if, and he's not there. He's not really there anyway. It's easy to believe that the ship is sinking. But it's in verse 39 is where we see the turn. It's in verse 39, in midst of the storm and the chaos, while the ship's being filled with water as the ship seems to be going down. It's in the midst of the chaos when we see who Jesus really is. That's when we begin to see who Jesus really is. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Through the storm, God is shouting to us. Through the storm in our lives, God is shouting. Our view of God, our belief in him, is not revealed primarily through pleasure or ease. Now, in verse 39, we see Jesus shouting something to his disciples. Because the storm has hit, the boat's filling with water, and things are getting out of control. We see who Jesus really is, not by just what he says, but by what he does. So we see who he is, not by just what he says, but what he does. It says that, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. And he says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, I used to think that my words had power. I remember my last semester of college, I was an education major, and I was student teaching in an eighth grade U.S. history class. And I thought my words had power, because for the most part, these eighth graders would listen to me. They'd go to the principal's office. They'd mostly stay quiet. Um, you know, I kind of had control of the class for the most part. But last week... I realized how powerless my words truly are 
when Caitlin and I very amazingly impulsively bought a puppy. <laughs> I realized my words carry very little weight. Because she's adorable. I'm convinced she has pooped more times in our apartment than I have. <laughs> she is. I can scream no. I can pick her up as I'm running out the door. She's still going. But guess what? She's, gonna, she's still going to squat and drop a big one in the middle of our living room. She, my, my words have very little power. Even when it comes to our little puppy, four-month-old Mila. She's adorable. She's terrible. Um, no, she's amazing. But here we see Jesus' words are different. Jesus' words carry very different weight from my words in a classroom or trying to potty train a puppy. Jesus' words are very different. His words have real power. Now, where have we seen this before? I feel like if this seems familiar, where have we seen this kind of interaction with water? Because I feel like God speaks water into existence from nothing, ex nihilo, and then we see through scripture all these big interactions with water with God's people. Let's look back at Exodus 14, probably one of the most famous interactions with water with Moses. So this prophet, he has a big interaction with water. Exodus 14, 21, 22. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God uses his prophet, one sent to instruct and lead his people to deliver them out of the dangers of Egypt. And what's the setting with this prophet? Water, through the water. The prophet leading them through the water. Let's fast forward a little bit down the line to Joshua 3. God's, we see God's chosen priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Joshua 3, 13 and 17, they say, And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. See, here we see God's people making intercession, intercession between God and his people. Priests are mediators between God and man. And we see that playing out here. And what's the setting with these priests, with these mediators? Through the water. We see them through the water. I would say these, this prophet and these priests are only illusions. They are only alluding to something else. Because the Bible is not, it's not a random assortment of stories and books. It's one big story. And it all points to one person. You see, Jesus' words have power because, yes, he is a prophet, come to teach and instruct, but he is not only a prophet like Moses. He is the prophet. And yes, Jesus is a priest to mediate, but he is not only a priest. He is the priest. Jesus' words have power because he is the prophet, he is the priest, and what we see by this text is he is the king. He is the prophet, he's the priest, he's the king. Jesus is the king. You see, what, this is what this entire story is about. This is what this entire book of Mark is about. This is why the, the series is titled Jesus the King. That's what we see. 
through every little story, every little interaction throughout Jesus, it's pointing that this is the king. His words have power because he is the prophet, he is the priest, and ultimately he's the king. And what do kings rule? They rule everything in their dominion, everything under their umbrella of power. So what does the president rule? The nation. What does the CEO rule? The company. What does King Solomon of Saudi Arabia rule? Saudi Arabia. Kings rule their domain. But what does Jesus rule? What is his domain? If he's really king, what's his domain? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is king over everything because he created everything. John 10, 10 says, or John 10 says that uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He's making a bold proclamation that I am God. He is the king. He, cre- he is the creator. I love verse 17 here. It says, in him all things hold together. Is that something that you believe in the midst of storms? That by the word of his power, he is holding everything together. If Jesus stops holding you together right now, if he stops speaking your name, you would cease to exist because it's by his words that we're held together. Hebrews 2.8 says that now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything is under his rule and his reign because he is Lord. He is king. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He is all three. He's prophet, priest, and king. Currently, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but that does not change the fact that he rules and he reigns. The disciples' acknowledgement of who Jesus is, of Christ being Lord and King, doesn't change the fact of who he is. They don't fully understand, but that doesn't change the fact of who he really is. Much like the law of the land today, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge who the president is, he's still the president. He still rules the country. It doesn't matter if you bow knee to him, he's still the president. It's so easy to be tempted as the disciples to come to Jesus screaming, don't you care? We're dying out here. Water's pouring in. Things are out of control. It's chaos and you're asleep. Think about the horrific things that have happened recently. Like two weeks ago in Texas, like a few weeks before that in Vegas. I got on the news this morning and there were three people shot just on the south side of Chicago alone. Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care we're perishing out here? But our king doesn't rule like a normal king. He is not, because he is not just a king. If he's the prophet, the priest, and the king, if Jesus were only a prophet, he would only be the one teaching to the masses, talking to many. If he was a prophet, he would only be teaching the masses. If he were only a priest, he would be the one in the boat with his men, but he would have no real power when water started pouring in. And if Jesus were only a king, he wouldn't be riding in a 15-passenger boat across the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) But here we see this beautiful combination of all three. All three. John Piper says that the world needed a suffering sovereign. Mere suffering would not do 
Mere sovereignty would not, would not do. The one thing is not strong enough to save. The other is not weak enough to sympathize. And I don't want a CEO as a savior. I don't want a president as a savior, far removed, far and above and away from me. Nor do I want just a teacher or a friend just to ride the storm with me. And I need someone with power. For Jesus to be the suffering sovereign would be a lot like the president getting dropped off into war-torn Syria. Since 2011, Syria have been in civil war and conflict. It's insane. For Jesus to be the suffering servant, the suffering sovereign, it'd be like the president going into a village in Syria, living into a, moving into a hut with these people, sympathizing with them, empathizing, coming alongside them, and then using his authority and power to bring justice and help in a time of need. This is how God designed it with his son. Mere sovereignty would not do. Mere suffering does us no good. Jesus had to become the suffering servant. Jesus isn't just the one who created the boat. He's the one riding the storm with us. He's not just the one who created it. He's the one in there with us. And that changes everything. Because Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. As we look, as we close, let's look back at 40 and 41 and see how Jesus changes everything by the word of his power. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When we come to the end of the story, we see what really rocked the disciples' world, what really shook them. It wasn't the storm. It was their friend. It was Jesus. It was witnessing the word of his power. What, made, what shook them? What made them so afraid? It wasn't the seismos, earthquake of a windstorm. It was Jesus. It was the suffering sovereign. Mark notes that they were filled with great fear. So they were afraid when the storm hit. They became very afraid when they saw Jesus' authority and power. Jesus' words have changed the course of the wind and the sea. The question we need to ask this morning is, have his words changed you? Has he changed you? His words have shifted the course of the world whenever and however he pleases. He rules and reigns. He is the king of all. He holds us together by the word of his power. Have his words changed you? As we look through the gospel of Mark, we see that no one interacts with Jesus and walks away the same. No one interacts with him and walks away the same. They either walk away completely changed for the better and, fought and begin to follow him, or they walk away sad. No one encounters Jesus and walks away the same. No, you would never expect someone to get hit by a car and walk away the same man. Or to go through a great windstorm on a tiny boat and live to tell the tale. I just think of like Mark describing what happened to his buddies outside of this. So this is his written account, but I can imagine him just chopping it up when they get coffee, when he gets reached the other side of the lake. You know, what, what, what might they be thinking? They might be like, okay, Mark, you're exaggerating. Like the storm really wasn't that big. It really wasn't that dangerous. Or maybe they said, like, Mark is losing his mind. There wasn't, it didn't even rain that day. You're crazy. Mark's nuts. Or the unthinkable. That the only way that Mark is alive today is because a miracle happened. It's because something intervened. After everything has happened in your life, I could pose the same question. Have you still no faith? Jesus asking them. After all that he's done, they're still 
They don't believe him. They don't trust him. This is a question he asks us. Have we still no faith? After all you've been through, off the countless little moments, Jesus entering the boat, Jesus entering the world, him entering our lives, it does not mitigate. We see it does not mitigate or take away from the storms that we encounter. But what we do have is a suffering sovereign. We have a prophet, a priest, and a king. Not high and lifted up, not a wet, not on the boat just to empathize with us, not just on the land to teach us, and not just a king to rule us, and but all three riding the storm with us. A God who has comes alongside our problems, who doesn't promise a life without storms. He never promises that. But one who ensures that he's riding them with us. I mean, the entire basis of Christianity is that we're trusting Christ with our life beyond this one. That's the whole basis of Christianity. Therefore, and Jesus is saying, you can trust me in the little moments. If you're trusting me with your salvation, if you're trusting me for eternity, how much more can we trust him with these tiny little moments in the storms through life? We see here that when Jesus' people were in danger, when they were threatened by the storm, Jesus opened his mouth to save them. He spoke a few words to save them. But what about when Jesus was in danger? What about when he encountered problems, when he was in trouble? 1 Peter 2.24 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When Jesus was persecuted, when he stood on trial, when he was beaten, when he was taken before this mock of a trial, taken to the cross, he did not open his mouth. He did not revile in return. He could have, he could have called down legions of angels but he held his tongue. We see that he opened his mouth to save his disciples when they were in danger. But what about when he was in danger? He kept his mouth closed. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When Jesus' disciples were in danger, he opened his mouth to save them. When Jesus was in danger... He kept his mouth closed to save us. He kept his mouth closed, not for himself. He kept his mouth closed to save us. When he was in danger, he didn't open his mouth. He kept it closed. He could have opened it and saved himself. He could have done whatever he wanted. But what did he do? That he bore our sin in his body on the tree, on the cross. See, the only way to truly be free of the storm. The only way to truly find safety is to have Jesus take the storm for you. Just as the disciples could never save themselves from this great windstorm, and you could never save yourself with your sin. I could never save myself. Sin is, it's a rebellion against God. It's not, sin is the opposite of living by faith in Christ. It's putting hope in anything but Christ. It's putting hope in family. It's putting hope in money, in retirement, in comfort, in your job, in power, in the control you have. Sin is, sin is putting your hope in anything and everything but Christ. But it says that he bore our sin in his body on the cross. Jesus didn't have any sin, but he bore our sin. He bore our windstorm. See, the greatest danger is not physical and played out on a lake. It's spiritual 
and played out on a cross. You just down the road, Mark 14. Has this changed you? Have his words has shifted and changed the course of the wind and the sea? Has his, have his words changed you? That's why the Christian is constantly thinking, who is this guy? And why would he step in my place? Why would he take my place on the cross? That's why the Christians, that's the question you wake up asking every morning, every time you open your Bible. It's the most radical story of all time. No one who interacts with Jesus can walk away the same. They walked away from that windstorm and out of that boat thinking, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey? Has this changed you? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, God, you, God, are truly the prophet, the priest, and the king. God, you come here to instruct. You came to empathize and come alongside of us. God, but you are the suffering sovereign. God, there are so many tears shed, so many problems in everyday life. God, and we don't need a king. We don't need a priest. We don't need a prophet. Lord, we need all three. God, thank you for coming alongside of us, for riding the storm with us, for jumping in the boat when you didn't have to, for entering our world, and for bearing the cross. God, despising the shame, Lord, taking our guilt and nailing it. God, saying it is finished. God, free us from, God, the stress and the problems and give us hope and confidence, not in a boat, not in a job, not in our future, not in retirement, Lord, Give us hope in your son, Jesus. God, that he has swallowed the great windstorm already. God, thank you for dying for us and for conquering death for us and coming alongside of us and not leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you for keeping your mouth closed when you were in danger so that we could be free. God, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.